Brent crude oil fell 0.1% to $82.47 a barrel. The US dollar index slipped as much as 1.5%. That's the biggest one-day drop in a year to touch the 104 mark on Tuesday, reaching its lowest point since the beginning of September. The yen is trading around 150.39, up 0.9% on the day. In Shanghai, the yuan added half a percent to 7.2530 renminbi. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up a third of a percent at 3,056. Hong Kong stocks gave up early gains of 0.8% to end the day 29 points lower, that's 0.2%, at 17,397. The city's benchmark index is down in five out of the last six trading days, leaving it over 3% lower over that period. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell 0.7%. Tech giant Tencent will announce earnings today and Alibaba tomorrow. And looks like we're going to see a big jump in the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 415 points. That's 2.4%. Index projected to start the day around about 17,810. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have our regular Wednesday morning commentator with us, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And also joining us, Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Uh, let's just revise again that uh, US consumer price inflation data. It dropped to a two-year low, fell more than expected, slow to 3.2% in October from 3.7% in both September and August. Energy costs dropped 4.5% compared to half a percent in September, and gasoline declined 5.3%. Food inflation fell to an over two-year low of 3.3% in October. And additionally, prices increased at a softer pace for shelter, new vehicles, and continued to decline for used cars and trucks. Compared to September, the CPI was unchanged. That's the least in 15 months and below forecasts of a 0.1% rise. The annual core inflation rate, that excludes volatile items such as food and energy, edged down to an over two-year low of 4% from 4.1% in the prior month. Economists had expected it to remain steady at 4.1%. And the shelter index, which accounts for over 70% of the total increase in all items, less food and energy, slowed to 6.7% from 7.2% in the prior month. On a monthly basis, core prices rose by 0.2% after a 0.3% increase in September. Enzio, what do you make of this data? I think that the fact that the overall inflation fell by about 14%, the rate from 37 to 3.2%, versus the core inflation's fall from by of 2.4% from 4.1% to 40 means that politics, oil, and Mother Nature food are greater determinants of America's inflation than the cerebral Fred trying to control these non-commodity inflation rates. And that, I think, tells you that the Fed, it continues being very blinkered in the way that it's going about controlling inflation, looking only at supply, at demand-side inflation, a bit like trying to knit, repair knitting needles, repair a car with knitting needles, while it's not looking at the supply-side constraints, and which it can't do anything about, but it's just not looking at them. So what should the Fed be doing? Should it uh, be now cutting rates, or what, what should it be doing? I think having made so many mistakes in the past, it better stay the course for now. And that's, I just find these markets are 
worse than economists. I mean, economists have two hands. The markets have about 15 views in every second. The recent worries in the FT were investor skittishness confounds central bank increases rate plans. And then two days, one day mm-hmm. later this week, stock investors face a tough reality of higher interest rates. Now, all of a sudden, gee, Merlin the Wizards come in and it rates are falling. So uh, we, uh, they should not bank on what the market's saying because the market is just getting it all, it's, it's just as mistaken as the Fed is in my mind. Right. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think Powell will do that. I mean, he's been saying and reiterating <coughs> and making sure the other Fed members are saying rates will stay higher for longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to look to cut. I mean, they had, the, you know, they, they've got the, uh, you know, they, they, they've got the, the problem, as, as Enzio was saying, that every time that uh, you know, the good data comes out, everybody jumps onto the conclusion that they're going to cut rates, but they're not. They're, they want to see this rate coming much closer to 2% before they're going to do any moves at all. And they've also, I think, you know, very much aware that there might be a small window at the beginning of next year for them to cut rates. But as the year goes on, we run into the US election. They won't want to Absolutely. be seeing cutting rates before the election. Uh, so there's a very small window, but I, I doubt whether they will take that because, you know, as, as Enzio was saying, they were wrong to start with. Uh, they, you know, they said it was a different sort of inflation and it turned out not to be. So they would probably you know, err on the side of causing a, a slight you know, heavier slowdown than risking the, uh, you know, leaving Pandora's box open. So the markets then are completely wrong because they're pricing in four rate cuts now next year. Yes, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that the, the, the reality is that uh, everybody in the last couple of years has forgotten the phrase, don't fight the Fed. Mm. Well put. <laughs> also, I just wanted to add that the current core inflation is still twice the rate of what it mm. wants, 4%, not 2 So why on earth they would then go and cut? But I think we all agree that, the, I, I hate saying wrong or right, but the markets are just, it's just knee-jerk reactions. Um, and that's what I call a backward waltz. It's, it's sort of haphazardly waltzing backwards. It's not doing, not going forward at all. Yeah, and the headline rate was down on, on energy costs, which is not going to really yes. sway the Fed at Absolutely. all. Absolutely. And food also. A little yeah. Bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and cars, I mean, remember this time last year, second-hand car prices were high because you couldn't get chips for modern cars. Mm-hmm. You know, they had these shortages. You know, that's worked its way through, so second-hand prices are coming down. You've also seen, though, a lot of the U.S. consumer uh, credit card <coughs> debts and uh, auto loans starting to see defaults. You know, there is, there is mm-hmm. you know, real problems coming through there. So the Fed's got to be careful, but I don't think it's going to make any hasty moves. No. But the Fed has always said they want to see a series of declines in the core readings. That's exactly what they've got. I mean, the core reading has been coming down consistently now since since April. So what more would they want? Well, they want to see it in the 2% range. I yes. mean, it's not there yet. Mm. I mean, a pe- long way, yeah. People in the markets are talking about this being a game changer. Um, I mean, they're saying that, you know, the data is clearly showing what they've been wanting to see for a long time. They're talking about uh, the decline in the shelter components of inflation, which has been very sticky. And that's been a big uh, part of why. Uh, inflation has remained um, sort of high. So, are the market are the are these investors wrong? I mean, they're they're talking about you know this is uh, this has changed the 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 picture. I think they're talking their own book up. I mean, I think at Absolutely. the end of the day, they're concerned about the economy slowing too quickly. Uh, they're concerned about you know the fact that the you, know, you did talk about the, the shelter element. Well, that's fair, but I mean the Fed's also looking at the fact that they've had strikes in the U.S. and they've had wage gains, and it's really the wage inflation that will worry them most, and less than the housing inflation that is going to come off as as people have to reprice interest rates repricing mortgages people won't move so fast you'll also see that 
you know, the new, it's only, I mean, the new higher mortgage rates only affect the new buyers. It's not the existing guys that just you'll see a slowdown in the, in the, in the volume of transactions there. Has the Fed overdone it? I mean, we know it takes a while for monetary policy to really um, sort of hit. So there's probably more slowdown to come in the economy. But, but are we at the, the stage where maybe the Fed has gone too far? Well, it's gone kind of in the wrong direction in my mind because it's trying to repair a car with using knitting needles. I get back to this thing with the, 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 the only inflation that the Fed is trying to fight is the demand side, too much money chasing too few good, it, goods. It neglects, for instance, the undersupply in the labor market, not because of tight labor markets per se, but because a lot of stoned young people don't want to work full stop. They want to live off their parents. So of course the labor markets, the wages are going to be high because if you, if you, there's, it's a bit like maids in Hong Kong. If, if there aren't enough of them around, so of course you have to jack up the price because nobody wants to do the, do the job anymore. But that labor data, you know, in the US, also in Europe, the UK, it's just not fit for purpose anymore, is it? It doesn't really reflect Absolutely. the way the labor market works um, these days. You know, a lot of people working from home, a lot of people billion. working part time. Um, it, it's almost hard to put any sort of credence on that data. It, yeah. But I think at the end of the day, you know, it's the wages that, that really reflect what the, what the labour market is doing. And it was quite interesting, actually. I think obviously this week we saw the UK come out with a new index on, on its labour markets. Mm-hmm. You know, so provisionally they're looking to try and change it. But it's very difficult. I mean, it's much better than the Hong Kong data, which is just a phone survey. So, uh, you know, we should be grateful for what we get. If you look at the monetary supply, M2, which I, I think NZO correlates sort of with your economic clock, yes, doesn't yes, it? Yes, when yes. you have excess Absolutely. supply of money or Absolutely. not enough yeah. supply of money. Yeah. If you look at the money supply, it's been plunging this year after shooting up um, after COVID because of all the, mm. the stimulus that was done, the government handouts. It's, it's turned negative. Um, so isn't that a sign that maybe the Fed should be done, has gone too far? Because if that's the case, the monetarists will say that, um, you know, we're going to see uh, um, even further defli- uh, declines um, in inflation and it may even slip into deflation. John Greenwood was recently saying that in a very good note of his that it's actually contracted for the first time since World War II mm. or something dreadful. So there is something to that. But again, I don't know that using yesterday's models on today's fixtures works the whole time because we've all been pretty confounded by the strength of the US economy. I most certainly have. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I, the, the reality is that, you know, there are certain sectors of the economy that, you know, there's there's too much money still. But there's all, you know, in the US, there's an awful lot of the lower classes that are struggling. Uh, and that's the dichotomy that the Fed is trying to balance. It's what we used to call rolling the, the rolling recession in the 70s. All of us are old enough to remember those mm-hmm. days. Maybe not <laughs> I remember so many of our listeners. Uh-oh. <laughs> but this is not just the Fed, is it? I mean, if you look around the world, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, they've finished raising rates as well. If you, if you look at the data and you look at what they're, they're saying. So this seems to be turning into a, a global trend. And some emerging markets, which sort of tend to be the, the canary in the coal mine, are actually cutting rates now. Well, I mean, you've got just different economies running now. That's the trouble between you know, between the emerging markets uh, and the resource bases also, yeah. and, and the established, you know, mature markets. And it's, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, the, the world has got a lot slower. So I think you, you are seeing a lot of this a lot quicker. Mm. What, what is interesting is the reaction in the markets in particular to this. We've had a couple of uh, big investment banks predict the Federal Reserve is going to cut. UBS mm. is saying uh, they think that continued decline in inflation will enable the central bank to start easing policy as soon as March and by large amounts 
Their strategist said inflation is normalising quickly. By the time we get to March, the Fed will be looking at real rates, which are very high. Morgan Stanley also forecasting deep cuts. Researchers there see rate reductions starting in June 2024, then again in September, and every meeting from the fourth quarter onwards. Um, and it's being reflected in the markets. I mean, investors are now dumping cash and buying bonds, according to the latest yeah. Bank of America fund manager survey. Well, they're doing that. But again, I, I, first of all, I think that it's what, what Andrew was saying before. They're talking their own book. It is much easier to buy to buy bonds in a rising market and, and, and sell bonds in a rising market than it is in the opposite. Um, and the other point is that there, you're going to have a huge bond issuance coming forth this coming year because of these shenanigans on Capitol Hill. The government has yet again run out of money, has to issue more paper and tons of it. And then more and more corporate debt is going to be issued because the economic time is simply worsening. We're getting an excess demand for money, excess supply of goods. That's the outlook. And that ain't going to change. And that's going to be pretty bad for the corporate profits, sort of corporate health and corporate profits outlook. Yeah, I think the, uh, I mean, the reality is that, you know, for years, literally for years you know the, the, the bond market has been struggling the now mm. that you can get five percent risk-free it means that you have to reevaluate your whole equity portfolio to see what where else am i getting five percent with low, mm. no risk that the, the longer problem i think though and then enzio is touching on this mm. is that is ju- the duration and the reinvestment duration at the moment they're going short end they're taking money out of etfs especially mm. yes. and that's again interesting because you know we didn't have those 15 20 years ago but they are now huge trackers of the huge. market and when people take their money out of that it does impact the markets mm. but it'll be the duration risk and where we are on the curve and the rein, you know, reinvesting if you buy a short term then you might start missing out on the 10-year as that starts to correct itself. Mm. Mm. If, if you look at what the most crowded trades are, according to the Bank of America survey, it's long big tech, short China equities and long T-bills. But it always makes you worried, doesn't it, when you see everyone crowding into the, the same sort of trade. I mean, there's been some big bets made now on having a big year-end rally um, on, on Wall Street. People have reduced their cash, put them into US equities. You, you sort of almost want to sort of steer away from it, don't you, when you hear um, these, these types of crowded trades? I wonder when banks pay out their bonuses. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a common survey. They're, they're talking to the same people each time, and it's, it, you rather get that herd mentality, unfortunately. I was actually the father of that survey. I, I put it together in Smith Court Far East back in 86, so I'm proud that it's going along. But as you say, surveys are surveys, and they're probably a little bit better than the telephone survey with the Hong Kong Labour Department here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the fund managers are trying just to stay with you know the, the the momentum trade that's on at the moment yes, absolutely um, you know they've seen the fact that you know the S&P is driven by seven stocks so that's why you'd go into tech you don't need the other you know 493 stocks there um, and you know that that's the same in most indexes here in Hong Kong it used to be that you just had to buy you know Hutch Sun and Kai Mobile HSBC and Chungkong and you had most of the index covered then you can pick the other ones, and you can you can you know, exclude the ones that are going to drag down your performance, and that's how stock pickers outperform. Mm. But um, when you have seven stocks who are basically holding up the whole market, if you take those seven stocks away, the S and P five hundred is flat on the year. When we've seen that type of thing happen before in history, it's never ended well. Which turns, which is bang in in in, in line with the economic time that whenever you reduce the money supply that we were talking about before, when you have an excess demand for money, you have less money for assets. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happened, I think, on the non 
so I call them the, the, the modest seven now, yeah. The modest seven, yeah. <laughs> not the mega seven. They might be the modest seven before yes, too long. Quite, you never yes. know. <laughs> you never know, no. But the other problem you have is, you know, if you sell any of those stocks, what else are you going to buy? Uh, and that's the yes. problem that a lot of fund managers have. You know, you have to stay with these. You know, it, yes. you've got no alternative. You know, mm. if you take those out of your portfolio, you are going to underperform and then you're going to have to answer as to why you did it. Mm. Uh, and so until they see them actually turn significantly, there's no point in them selling them because they'll just underperform. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to around here. Um, we've had quite a lot of China data recently. We had the new loans data, which came out at the beginning of the week. New Yuan loans fell uh, less less than expected. Um, the Chinese banks extended about $101 billion in new loans in October. But the, the, the independent surveys seem to be showing China's economy losing uh, momentum. So where are we, Enzio, now in the, in the economic clock for, for the mainland? That's definitely an excess supply of money, excess supply of goods in my mind. In other words, the, we, we all know that the demand is kind of not there. But where I take issue with the market is the reason for all of this the Chinese government included wants to keep on stimulating, adding another little fiscal reserve, fiscal shot here and a monetary shot perhaps down then there, but more fiscal. I'm just saying, well, until the Communist Party decides that it wants to relinquish control of throttling the private sector, the private sector which creates 80% of all employment, until they allow the private sector to, to flourish again, this place is going to go nowhere in a hurry, I'm afraid, and that's a long-term story of mine. So any sort of stimuli are really, again, trying to give, an, trying to give a depressive um, aspirin and hoping that he'll get better, she'll get better. Well, what about the latest plan then, which is to provide one trillion yuan uh, to, to the property sector to have affordable housing programs to try and shore up the property market? Is that going to get to the, the core of the problem, which is really, it, it is the, the China's housing market, isn't it? Well, it, it's, it's again, you know, they're not worried about the developers. That's the key thing mm. to remember here. These are government projects. These mm. are not going to, to bail out the developers. These are going to make sure that housing is more affordable to people. And that's you know, one, of the, one of Xi's things. That was the three red lines. You know, the, there was too much uh, speculative money turning up and buying flats that weren't being lived in, but they were just there as a store of value. He wants that money out of property and into high tech because that's where he's really got to compete. And that's, I mean, you know, you look at it, you know, he's at, he's at APEC, but is he going to dine with Biden? No, he's going to go and meet business leaders because he needs business to come in and he needs high tech business to come in to really drive that economy. At the end of the day, building more flats, that was 15 years ago is that plan. Now they have to build high tech yes. in order to be globally competitive. Yeah. But this money is going to trickle down, they say, to households for, for home purchases. But do people want to buy houses anymore? Is, isn't that the problem? Well, I think a lot of people do. I mean, I th there's a lot of people that live in the major cities. But again, because of the residency system, they don't have the rights to buy these properties. They won't have the rights to the health care, the education. So, you know, it, if you're building more flats out in the provinces, it's not going to have any difference at all because you know, those are already supplied. If they're going to change the registration system and allow people to work in the cities and have the benefits of working in the cities, then it may make a, a difference. But I, you know, I think as, as with all these things in China, we have to wait to see the real facts on the ground before jumping to conclusions. Yes. Mm. Moody's was saying yesterday that uh, this downturn in the property market is going to hit um, other sectors as well. 
Um, in fact, they were quite uh, quite gloomy um, about it, and they saw several uh, transmission channels, uh, such as supply chains, employment, the financial sector, all leading to uh, this downturn sort of spreading. So presumably, the go- if they're correct, the government's going to have to try and do something somewhere, aren't they, to, to try and get out of this rut? Well, the reality is, if you don't buy flats, you don't need fridges, you don't need how, you know, you don't need microwaves, Absolutely. you don't need sofas, and that's a big part of the, the the economy generally there. So it will have an impact. But I mean, the the other reality though is is the fact that China is changing its economy. You know, it's not yeah. worried about the developers because again, most of the developers are are funded by foreign money. You know, they don't mind if they go bust. What they're trying to do, though, is put in a, you know, if you look at it on the longer term, they're trying to put in a a proper pension system. They're trying to create the banks into proper financial Mm. institutions, proper proper banking regulations, uh, in order to make the economy fit for purpose, which, frankly, it isn't at the moment. Mm. But I get get back to my maybe ideological point that as long as they keep on thwarting Mm. the private sector and disallowing it to really flourish and create jobs where the private sector, not some government official sitting in a little booth, the, where the private sector sees the demand for jobs, it's just none of this other stuff can really, really ignite the place in my mind. And, and again, I mean, as yet Janet Yellen was saying uh, just last night, you know, if they're going to support things like solar industry, things like EVs, you know, they're, they're creating a false market there. They'll, they may manage to dominate it, but it's not real demand. So you yes. know, just as we've seen the, the solar panel sector be decimated by over, over, oversupply from China, it has the risk of doing that, and that will impact the global economy yes. as well. Now, President Xi has landed in uh, San Francisco. He's going to meet with Joe Biden later on today. Before that meeting, President Biden has been speaking this morning. He says he wants to try to find ways to help China's economy because it's in the best interests of the US economy if China does well, although he says not at the expense of things like intellectual uh, property rights. But he said it's it's good for the US if, uh, if employment goes up, people have better paying um, jobs. Um, so what can he do? Well, I thought it was quite interesting, actually. He's, he's followed Jamie Dimon's line of saying the people of China rather than the government or the, the ideology oh, of China. Never, never. So he's, he's trying to instill that, you know, the, the West wants you to be rich, but we want you to do it our way uh, as opposed to the communist way. Uh, mm. And I think that's an interesting track. I mean, at the end of the day, they're not going to do a huge amount. They're going to be like Albanese, you know, we agree where we can and we disagree where we must. So I mean, they're not even continue. dining together. So they're not having a joint communique, not dining together. They want the lowest level of agreements at the lowest, at the lowest possible cost. So I think it's more just a statement of positions, actually, this go-around. I don't think there's going to be any negotiation. It's more just a statement of positions. It's finding the lowest common denominator. Yes, yes. In order to get... But I think a lot of it is in order to get a lot of these you know, military communications back. I mean, the risk of a mistake yes. you know, somewhere in the With South China, China Sea Taiwan, is, is, yeah. is high. Um, and that that would have devastating. You know, we saw the reaction to a spy balloon. So you can imagine the reaction to a plane crash again. Or Cuba, again. or Cuba. Back well, in the yeah, 60s, remember yeah. the the spy plane that went down in yes. Hainan. You know, yes. that that created a huge mm. upset for mm. many many months. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, you know, the the global economy isn't as good as it was then. So you know, it it you know, there's a double whammy, unfortunately. Yes. 
So it's worth them meeting just for that alone, the fact that they've... That's you know, the main reason so, they're meeting. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the main it's reason they're meeting. It's better just to talk than, than to... Open the communication yeah, channels yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Could there be any surprises coming out of this? I mean, the bar has been set so low, hasn't it, now, for the outcome of this meeting that I suppose uh, the surprises could come on the upside and, and they come up with something that uh, we're, we're not prepared for or didn't expect. I hope it's going to be on the military side. I hope that the communications get opened a bit more. Um, at least they can discuss it over a cup of tea, if not over a steak. Yes, I think. I mean, it was interesting. I mean, I don't think we're going for any surprises. Everybody knows all the issues that are out there. Mm. Um, I guess the only unfortunate surprise could be on the downside that they get upset with each other. Yes. <laughs> mm. um, but I don't think. But we won't see that. No, no, no. But I don't think they'll allow it to happen. I think both of them, mm. you know, both of them have got to play to their domestic markets. Absolutely. Um, and neither of them. I mean, Biden's facing an election, and Xi is facing a slowing economy, which for both of them there are risks there. Yes. You know, if Xi doesn't get the good public support then you know his whole tenure is under Absolutely, under question yeah. um and the same for biden so what does president xi want from this then because he must know he's not going to get uh trade sanctions and tariffs lifted there's not going to be an easing of all the restrictions on semiconductor exports and machinery high-tech exports uh to china so so what can he realistically expect from this i think he wants to buy time to cope with china's economic problems and boost innovation technologies hampered by American restrictionism. And I think, so I think it's, it's to buy time. The US, I think, wants to just show that it's, it's actually better at managing competition with China, especially in the run-up to the elections. As Andrew was saying, all politics are domestic, and both companies, both sides are wanting to go back to, to their respective constituents and say, you see, I won that. Hmm. And I think, you know, Xi's got what he wants. He's got a good dinner. Um, <laughs> it's a long so, way to go for dinner, isn't it? <laughs> but but he's got it's it's the guests. You know, he's yes. meeting the top executives. He's meeting the people that yes, he needs yes. to be able to speak to yeah. to say we are open again for business. Now, whether or not China is open again for business, especially when you're seeing them, you know, introducing introducing more data restrictions and things like that. Yes, this is a problem. You know, he's. But it may be that he speaks to these people or hopefully he listens to them and they say, look, we're not coming back until you, you know, loosen up on some of these Absolutely, things. Absolutely, yeah. And if, if the party is, and if he is prepared to, I mean, it's not so much the party, it's really, if he decides that they're going to loosen up on some of these restrictions, they will. They will. But he's got another problem. You know, the data is bad. The people in China don't know the data is bad. So they have to control it in order to keep hold of the dialogue uh, and in order to just keep saying that everything is, is going well. It's a risky dinner, though, isn't it? I mean, that's obviously his audience. He's, he's going there because he wants to meet these 300 top business executives. But they could really give him quite a hard time, politely, I'm sure. But they could, couldn't they? But hopefully they will, because that's what, you know, the, the China really needs a reality check. You know, it, it's going on, as Enzio was saying, in its own little world at the moment, thinking everything is good. We, we can make 5%. But actually, you know, they, they probably can't. They live in a bubble of... of, of, of a bunch of yay-sayers because they have to. And, and I think that that's, I, I get that he wants to lead his country, but to thwart any any other forms of, of saying things, not it doesn't even have to be opposition. That's why I think the executives are much more Western. They don't really, they don't need to go to China. They, they do need to go to China because of the demand in China, but they don't need to be there today. They can put that off 10 years if they want. And I think a lot of them who are already there are saying, well, look, okay, we've got a plant there. We'll, we'll yeah. use it to supply China, but we're not going to do exports Absolutely, from China. Yeah. And it's that export market that China still needs. You know, without that, they're not going to be 
going up the tech ladder, and that's yeah. what he wants to do. For defence um, reasons also, yeah. And I think there was a good article, I, th I think it was in the FT or The mm. Economist, and it was basically pointing out that within China, the technocrats have been replaced by loyalty mm. candidates. Ah, interesting, mm. yes. So he's no longer getting... The, the, the true picture of what's happening in the outside world, well I think. Well done, yes. Uh, and and that's what he clothes, might need yes. from this, this dinner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He needs a good um, independent civil service, which is something like the UK has or used to have, uh, but uh, doesn't exist yeah. in China. No, that's exactly it. Is he going to be able to persuade people at this dinner, investors, to come back to China, do you think? I mean, we know that they've been pulling out in, in droves. Um, you know, they've been pulling out of the markets. Foreign direct investment has turned negative mm. for the first time since records began. I think that was back in 1998. Can he reverse that trend by something he says or at this dinner? I think you have to be careful of the FDI. I mean, if you consider that, you know, again, foreign companies in China, if they can get 5% in the U.S., and they can refinance any money that they take out of China with low loans from the PBOC or the local banks, they're going to do that. So that's not a really about... Um, that's about the, the interest rate differential. That's not really about investment in China. They're not taking plant and machinery out. They're just refinancing mm. loans. But they're taking their profits rate. out. They're taking the profits yes. out because they can and because it makes sense. If you don't leave your profit in China where you're going to get 1% from the PBOC if you can get 5% from the US Treasury. Yes. So that's purely businessness. But I think... The, the, the bigger issue is, you know, is China now still the export? Is it still the, the manufacturing base of the world? Or do we go to India or do we go to Indonesia or Vietnam? All these, there are all these other options now. And, and that's what China's now. It's, it used to be the manufacturing base because it was cheap. And, and then uh, and that's no longer the case. It used to be that you've got good information. That's no longer the case. And it used to be that the government was on your side in trying to get things done. And that's kind of questionable. But the other point also that's very important, actually I studied multinationals quite a bit when I was in Germany, is that they often go to places, huge markets, because they want to tap into the domestic demand. But if there's no domestic demand, it's a little bit like this fictitious dinner that they're going to have. It just ain't there. So... It's, it's fine and good for the Germans to build cars in China. If they're not going to be bought, mm. then why build them? So what can he say at this dinner to calm investors' nerves, which is clearly what he wants, isn't it, and, and persuade them to, to come back? Is there anything he can say? What he can say is that he would like the private sector to assume more of a role in rerunning the economy. That, but he, he said, said the that, opposite to that. He said the opposite to that, and that's why they will listen courteously, as both of us, all of us have agreed, Um they will nod, nod, wink, wink. They probably want to see each other there and see if they're all going to Vietnam or to India. And um, I don't think much is going to come of this except that it just it maybe placates a little bit on the, on the South China Sea tensions and on the Taiwan Straits tensions, so I hope. I think my, my hope would be that actually mm. he, he doesn't tell them, he actually listens. I mean, yes, when, when I first point. came into sales, I was told, you've got uh, two ears and one mouth, you should use them proportionally. <laughs> and hopefully he will do that. And mm. listen to what the market, what, you know, these are the people that will drive his economy at the end of the day. Yes. If he doesn't listen to them, then, you know, China's in a one-way street. And yes. if you don't listen to your market, if you don't listen, you know, to your buyers, then you're going to end up with products that nobody wants. Okay, very good point. Well, we'll see what happens over the next 24 hours, both in the meeting with um, President Biden and dinner also this no dinner. dinner. Yes, no yes. dinner. Yes. I'm, I'm betting on no dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to speak to you both. You heard there, Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. 
I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. Good morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, everyone looking forward to this uh, Joe Biden-President Xi Jinping meeting later on today. President Xi's already landed um, in San Francisco. Um, But it's sort of rather overshadowed the fact that there is an apex summit um, going on, and and we don't seem to really have heard very much at all about what's happening there. I don't even know. Um, I presume that uh, Fumio Kishida from Japan has, has gone, but who's representing Japan at this summit? Well, I think um, it's... You know, it's a very important um, meeting that will take place. I think although, you know, China and the U.S. have sort of dominated the media discussions on this um, for obvious reasons, there are obviously a lot of other uh, countries involved in those uh, talks as well. And I think, you know, where we where we see a a world with continued geopolitical tensions, trade tensions, what happens between the U.S. and China will obviously affect all of the other economies uh, that are part of APEC, um, particularly as they are, you know, close trading partners of of China. So, you know, we will be looking forward to, you know, the release of whatever the statement is between the US and, and China. And hopefully it will, you know, ease some of the trade tensions that we can see, um, you know, in terms of, for example, um, export controls and these types of things and, you know, understand how that may impact some of the other economies in the Asian region then. How, how does Japan view these APEC summits? Does it see them as important? Well, I mean, ja- Japan is very interested, of course, in uh, trade agreements. And, um, you know, this will be an important consideration for Japan. Um, as you know, the, the semiconductor industry has been developing, uh, you know, reasonably strongly in Japan in recent times and you know the implications of um what happens at at the apex summit in terms of trade negotiations uh trade agreements and um, particularly as i said in in relation to um the tensions that are apparent uh from the perspective of china and the us will have implications not only for japan but also for for other economies in the region as well Mm. And Japan, of course, obviously the US is a big export market for it, but there are other big markets in the region as well, aren't there? Uh, Canada, obviously, Mexico, uh, and then, of course, other uh, Pacific countries. Exactly. You know, I think, um, you know, trade is obviously at the top of the agenda um, and seeking to um, have freer trade and and building multilateral trade agreements across uh, different economies will be will be important and i think one of the important aspects of the apex summit as a result of that will be to look at how the other economies are are feeding into the um resolution in uh, trade tensions that we see at the moment mm. and, you know this all under the you know the the problems that we we can see with uh, supply chains, which are affected, of course, by the geopolitical tensions, and these, you know, uh, frictions in global supply chains obviously affect everyone. And I think we had a, a problem in recent times with even AI disrupting um, supply chains in, in Australia, and you know th- this can this can have implications um, across the board and seeking understanding between between economies on these issues is is clearly very important 
But despite all the meetings and despite the, uh, the the big meeting between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, it's very unlikely, isn't it, that we're going to see an easing of sanctions. We're going to see export restrictions uh, taken taken away or, or reduced. It, it doesn't seem to be that's on the table for this meeting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to expect something of that nature to to come out of the meetings. But at the very least, it can be symbolic of. Um, understanding uh, where both sides are and perhaps over the longer term you know coming to a, an understanding that a cooperative uh, multilateral type of approach is best for all and you know if you look at china's economy it's you know it's not the best at the moment in terms of growth and it will understand that um you know trade will be an important factor that can contribute to growth and in order to release that trade uh, avenue for growth it will be you know important to resolve some of these uh, frictions that that exist on the trade side well president biden's been speaking ahead of that uh, meeting with president xi he was saying um, earlier on today that he wants to help china um, grow its economy and improve its economy and it's in the best interests of the us if it does so although he says not at the expense of things like intellectual property rights and and so on but he said it's certainly good uh, if employment picks up if people get better paid jobs um, in china and he wants to see what he can do uh, to assist with that so what what can he do well, I think, you know, there are obviously uh, political uh, interruptions to, um, you know, releasing what can be done on the economic side. I think President Biden is basically stating uh, the obvious in terms of what's good for the economy. Um, but I think, you know, there are difficulties um, within that on the political side, which 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 may make it uh, more problematic. As you, as you know, the U.S. has... Uh, certain uh, export controls um, on China at the moment. And, you know, it would take uh, um, significant uh, negotiation and um, other other types of um, talks in order to resolve those types of, of issues. But I think, you know, when political uh, factors are, in, uh, you know, intertwined with desired economic outcomes, it's always difficult. Mm. I mean, it's hard to see what can come out of this, really, isn't it? I mean, I suppose it's good uh, that they're talking and the bar has been set very low for in terms of um, outcomes. But uh, both, with both sides being careful, President Xi doesn't want to be seen to be being weak to, in the US and giving in to the US. And at the same time, President Biden's got an election coming up and a, uh, and a Congress that's very hostile towards China. It's very hard to see what really can come out of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's exactly right. It's difficult to see what can come out of it in terms of something concrete. So, for example, in terms of removing restrictions and this type of um, outcome. But I think it's certainly positive that uh, both parties are present and um, consider the the opposite if, you know, China or the U.S. Well, it's, it's taking place in the U.S., of course. But if China was not there, it would send a terrible signal and would, um, you know, really uh, worsen uh, relations and this would have ramifications for other economies in the region as well. It, it could lead to, you know, further restrictions. At least it's um, some symbolic sign that um, there may be progress over the longer term. What do you think President Xi wants from this? He must know 
that is not going to get tariffs list lifted, these sanctions uh, on something like 1,500 uh, Chinese companies now, which uh, means that, you know, Companies have to get licenses to uh, export to them um, and, and damaging their technology sector in the process. He must know that's not going to change. So what, what can he realistically um, hope for from this meeting? Well, I think one of the concrete things that can be hoped for is um, an understanding um, of the perception of China by other APEC members and, and the US, of course, and which factors are really at the top of the agenda. And, you know, taking that into consideration, whilst also understanding the economic difficulties in China may lead to something down the road in terms of, um, you know, factors that should be focused on to improve the economic uh, outlook over the over the medium to longer term. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's not having dinner with President Biden. Instead, he's going to this dinner with 300 business executives. Uh, from from the US. Presumably, um, what he really wants from them, this this is the the reason why he's going, isn't he? That's his real audience that he's com- uh, uh, caring about, because he wants them to come and invest in China or to, uh, to reinvest in China because they've been pulling their money out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's always difficult if there are, you know, overarching uh, trade restrictions still in place. But of course, I think, um, you know, Building relationships with different parts of the private sector is also very important. I think um, it all points towards um, at least an intention of a cooperative uh, action on trade. Um, so I think that's something at least that can be taken positively. Do you think there's anything he can say at this dinner that's going to calm overseas investors who have been selling Chinese stocks and also companies have been taking their money out of China? They're not reinvesting their profits anymore. They're taking the money out, which is why foreign direct investment has turned negative for the first time um, on record. Is there anything he can say to to change people's minds? Well, I, I think it would be important to you know discuss um, the outlook for the economy in China. So to allay fears around deflation, which are which are like not not apparent at the moment, but they were uh, uh, in the recent past. The property sector remains under pressure, and this could spill over to uh, debt problems um, in the in the near future. So I think that allaying um, some of those concerns on the outlook for the for the economy in China would be very important. Um, and I think that can be one contributory factor to uh, encouraging uh, flows of investment. Now, what about Japan? We've had some economic data out. We had the Tankan uh, sentiment index. It did rise, suggesting that there is an improvement in, in business confidence for maybe the first time since August. How's the mood over there? Yes. Well, I think, you know, the underlying problem is still that um, domestic demand is still problematic. And and this is, of course, the underlying reason for the no change in uh, monetary policy, um, because there's still a need to to stimulate that. And even in Japan, there's a, you know, a need to trigger a response in wages as well and to, to have some type of wage price spiral that would help on the domestic demand side. I think that, you know, the Tankan survey, as you said, uh, rose, the yen continues to weaken, and this is supportive of exports, of course, but, uh, you know, on the domestic side, it's uh, it's still problematic uh, in terms of the contribution to, to economic growth.
Mm, and the problem is Japan's nominal wages, although they're going up, real wages are, are still lagging behind inflation. Yes, that's right. I mean, this has been a problem for quite some time. Um, you know, a lot will be focused on in the first quarter in in 2024 on, on what happens with the next round of wage negotiations. As we can see, um, inflation is currently at around 3%, but there's still the view that you know, the, the sustainable level of, of 2% is uh, still something that warrants uh, the accommodation in monetary policy that we see at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's it's problematic and it's, it's even provoked a fiscal uh, policy response um, to deal with some of these cost of living pressures, at least in the short term, even though they're coming from the supply side. Now, I find that a bit odd because it sort of suggests that um, the government and the, the Bank of Japan aren't exactly on the same page. Here we have this fiscal stimulus to deal with um, the, the impact of rising inflation. But then on the other hand, you've got the Bank of Japan saying they want more inflation and are trying to get more inflation. Yes, that's true. It's the, it's the nature of the inflation which is uh, important here. So, you, you know, from the perspective of, of the government and the, and the fiscal stimulus, this is to really address um, inflation that is largely coming from the supply side, um, which is viewed to dissipate over time. And actually, the wholesale price index in Japan uh, came down for the first time in September. And this may be an indication that, um, you know, we, we may see some dissipation in these supply side uh, price pressures um, going forward. And in the meantime, the, the yen is all over the place, isn't it? It had a very volatile day on Monday, got to um, 152 um, against the dollar before rebounding. It, it, the rebound seems to be mainly because the dollar um, is, is weak at the moment. But nevertheless, we continue to see this big volatility in the yen. That's right. You know, the yen has continued to depreciate. Um, and it's really driven by uh, the, the fundamental yield difference between the US and Japan. Um, recently, we've seen some softening in U.S. inflation, which may be helpful for narrowing that uh, U.S. spread relative to Japan. And that would, of course, uh, support the yen. But ultimately, um, you know, unless we see uh, a significant narrowing in, in that uh, yield spread, you know, the, the yen will likely remain around the, the 150 level for, for some time. John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with the show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.